You're listening to Differentiated with Ben Silverman, where investment research analysts dive into insider data and demystify the signals that drive one-of-a-kind investment ideas. Welcome to Differentiated. I'm your host, Ben Silverman. On April 13th, 2023, the Securities and Exchange Commission made a change. On that date, the SEC began requiring the digital filing of Form 144s. These important filings had, for years, not been required to be filed digitally, an odd regulatory oversight that perplexed analysts like myself and others. If the SEC considered the information so important, why it was largely hidden from investor view? Instead of being filed through the Edgar system, like virtually every other SEC filing, historically, Form 144s have largely been filed on paper, either mailed in or faxed to an SEC office in Washington, D.C., hand-processed, held for 90 days, and then actually destroyed. Only a small percentage of these filings were ever made available digitally, and most of those were in PDFs, making data extraction difficult. So what are Form 144s? To discuss that with me is Verity Data Senior Analyst Max McGee. Max, welcome to Differentiated. Thanks for having me, Ben. I'm glad to speak with you again. So Form 144s, as I mentioned in the intro, were never required to be filed digitally to now, but let's start with the basics. What is a Form 144? Form 144 disclose only an intent to sell securities at some point in the next 90 days. So it's an intent to sell securities. A Form 144 is not disclosing the actual transaction. Is that correct? That's right. It's sort of a preview of a transaction that a seller intends to make. Okay, so this is akin to the order to sell versus the execution, which would actually be reported on the Form 4. Right. It's like the difference between placing an order with your broker, perhaps a limit order, or any kind of order to sell a security versus that trade actually taking place. Understood. Who files 144s? Because for Form 4s, which uh, is what any purchase, sale, gift, stock award uh, for an executive officer or a company board member or a 10% shareholder, those are disclosed on Form 4s. And to be classified as an insider, you have to meet certain standards. Some companies have four or five executives and insiders. Some have 12, 15, upwards of 20 executives who classify as insiders. But there's a difference with Form 144s. Is that correct? Yes, unlike Form 4s and essentially all other filings in EDGAR, which are submitted to the SEC by the company, Form 144s are filled out by the broker that is conducting the trade. And there is a broader array of individuals and entities that are subject to 144s compared to Form 4s. And that's because Form 144s deal with a certain type of securities. And these are restricted securities or control securities. And what that means is these would have been securities that were acquired not through uh, a registered offering, such as shares purchased in an IPO or secondary. These would have been shares that were acquired perhaps in a pre-IPO private placement or some kind of other private placement. These would have been shares acquired via restricted stock awards or option exercises. 
you know, again, these are shares that, you know, one way to look at it is that were not made available to the public. And that's why they're being disclosed here. So we know that the difference right now in this discussion and where we're at is that Form 144s disclose the intent to sell, not the actual sell. It's more than just insiders who file these. It could be some other people who are shareholders. And it's not all shares that are covered, but it, you know, probably most, but it's still not all. Who are the other types of people who might file Form 144s if they're not current executives and board members and 10% shareholders? So these would be any other individuals or entities that would have had the opportunity to acquire shares in the fashion that you just described. A classic example might be an early investor perhaps receiving shares well before a company went public. After the company goes public, they're not large enough or they don't qualify as an insider, yet they have these shares that were not originally available to the public. And so they are subject to filing 144s when they are looking to dispose of those shares. And there is a threshold for for the uh, sales. It has to be $50,000 worth of securities or 5,000 or more shares. So you there might be some smaller sales that sort of, again, never get disclosed in any avenue, or they might only be disclosed, they might not reach that threshold, but end up being disclosed on a Form 4. Having spent over 20 years analyzing SEC filings, I've clamored for the opportunity to have all of the Form 144s and all the data associated with it. And there certainly are some advantages to it. One advantage would be uh, foreign private issuers. Can you talk about that for a moment, Max? Sure. So while foreign private issuers have historically been exempt from disclosing transactions via Form 4s through the SEC, uh, in a lot of cases, they have been required to disclose Form 144s. As you mentioned earlier, Ben, for years and years, these were on paper. They were hard to get a hold of. They were hard to make use of. But they did offer a paper trail for companies like Spotify out of Sweden or Baidu out of China. You know, some companies that are very widely followed, but that we had limited visibility into insider activity. With these 144s going digital, we now are going to have quite a bit more visibility into the insider activity at some of these foreign issuers. Right. And so one of the disclosures that is necessary within the Form 144 is actually the sales you did make in the prior three months. So what will be interesting is that we can be able to start to piece together this data as time moves on to get a fuller accounting of these foreign transactions. You know, right now we're two months into this new digital filing age for the Form 144s. But as we continue to build up, uh, you know, a database of Form 144s, we'll get more and more insight into insider trading at foreign companies and be able to start to really understand the insider behaviors there like we do at U.S. companies because we get the transactions disclosed on Form 4s. On the timing of 144s, what I think is interesting is that it has to be filed before the sale. Now, this could be the same day. You could file the Form 144 in the morning, transact the sale the same day. 
But it, it does give us a little lead time with regards to the selling. That said, there's sort of a pitfall there. And that's where we start to pivot the conversation here a bit to talk about what are the drawbacks of 144s. So what I've routinely told our clients over the years is that Form 144s can, can help, but you've got to be really careful because there's an incomplete picture that you can be drawn from there. They can be confusing and they can lead you down some rabbit holes, which, you know, for investors, the one thing you can't get back is time. So, Max, what's what would you say is the biggest sort of touch point for confusion for a 144? I think it's been common and completely understandable for investors to look at these Form 144 filings when they come across them and to assume that they are insider sales. But what they actually are, as we've been discussing, is simply an intent to sell. And as we know, I mean, think of an example of placing a limit order at a certain price. That limit order may not fully fill. So an insider may intend to sell a certain number of shares over a certain time period, and they may not be able to actually execute that sale. So it can be it can be very misleading in that sense. And the gold standard for what has actually happened, what an insider has actually done, is always going to be the Form 4. And we, going forward, are going to view Form 144s as an avenue to get a little more color around those sales. So for example, an insider we know through a Form 4 sold 30,000 shares, we can look back at a 144 and see, okay, but this person intended to, or maybe still intends to sell a total of 90,000 shares. But you really need the mosaic of information. You cannot just rely on the 144s alone. Right. And I mean, that that example you gave, that, that was a real life example where we saw that where an executive had filed to sell, I believe it was 90,000 shares over the 90 day period. The first sale came in and it was 30,000 shares. Now, knowing what we know, looking at their transaction history from Form 4s, we were able to extrapolate that this particular person was going to sell 30,000 shares once a month for the next three months. Again, if and that actually makes their selling less interesting. It's less informative. They weren't selling at a certain valuation. They were just selling in a time-based manner, something they had done for years. And as a result, if you looked at that form of 144 and said, whoa, they're going to sell 90,000 shares, then you kind of had some bad information because you didn't understand the context of what was going on. You didn't understand the timing, whether there was valuation-related inputs into the selling. And speaking of valuation, Max, there's a key piece of information that is not on a Form 144 because it is filed before the sale. Yep, the price. And that's why you really need this mosaic. And that price is obviously a very key component of any insider transaction. Right, because with... Having the price, we can understand whether the insider is using a minimum sale price threshold, whether they are using a trigger price, which is another word for that would be aspirational price. It's whether they're changing their behavior from previously. Maybe they've lowered the price they're willing to sell at. You know, maybe, you know, again, this isn't even connected to prior sales that were valuation oriented. 
one of the other things I found a bit confusing, if you don't have the Form 4s, is understanding sometimes what the actual nature of the sale is, because on Form 4s, there's some pretty good footnoting that is quite often used by the filers themselves, whether, you know, the insider or the company. And one of the things that helps us do is understand whether the sale is non-discretionary or discretionary. Obviously, discretionary selling is more important. It's This is somebody making a decision to sell. But there's non-discretionary selling around things like restricted stock vestings and the insider having to sell shares to cover the tax liability there. Uh, in some of the Form 4s you've been looking at, Max, have you noticed you know, whether this is being footnoted, whether you know you can delineate a discretionary or non-discretionary sale from a one, uh, 144? Well, on the Form 4 side, you know, this is something that Verity has spent a lot of time on over the years is delineating those sales because in many or most cases, those sales are mandated by company policy and they really carry no sentiment value whatsoever because it's just something that the insider has to do to pay their taxes. There are various ways that those are identified on Form 4s, and you know, we are able to capture all those ways, often during with footnotes, but, but also with certain ways the Form 4s are filled out. A 144, on the other hand, may just say that an individual is going to sell a certain number of shares, and it will typically have none of those other indications saying, oh, and by the way, this was a mandated sale to cover the taxes on the vesting. So what could happen there is if somebody is looking at a 144 and doesn't understand that context, they may be led to believe that an insider is selling when in fact, as would be clear from the Verity platform, that is the type of transaction we would quote unquote ignore uh, as not a discretionary sale. Thank you, Max. The change to digital filings for Form 144 is, is interesting because we get now more transparency into insider transactions and transactions by some non-insiders, but it's such an incomplete picture that without the Form 4s that go, you know, kind of hand in hand with them, without the insider histories, it can be real tricky. And, you know, my fear is that investors, you know, will start using these and possibly ignoring Form 4s or not really understanding how the sets of filings interplay and start making some mistaken assumptions. Absolutely. These suddenly becoming widely available, the 144s, raises the potential for a lot of investor confusion around insider transaction data sets. And so we recommend being careful and we are optimizing our platform as we always have make sure that the context is there so that our clients understand the true nature of the insider behavior that's occurring thanks again for your input max and thanks for uh, joining us today thanks for having me We just discussed Form 144s and some of the advantages and disadvantages of what's disclosed in these filings. Now I want to actually look at a recent Form 144 that provided some unique insights that one would only get from Form 144s, but also that if looked at in a vacuum, 
could give the investor trying to utilize this information some bad inputs. So the company involved was Global Payment, GPN. And on May 1st, 2023, the company announced that Jeff Sloan would resign as CEO effective June 1st. That was a sort of surprising uh, announcement. Uh, some of the uh, sell-side analysts that cover the stock you know, called this an abrupt departure. Uh, Sloan's resignation, which is, again, effective on June 1st, 2023, meant he was no longer an insider at the company because he had actually resigned not just from the CEO position, but from his uh, board spot. Now, he also wasn't staying on as a consultant or for any longer transition period. So he was free and clear. That also meant that he was no longer required to file Form 4s to disclose any transactions that he might execute after his departure. The following day, which was Friday, June 2nd, 2023, Sloan filed a Form 144. And in that filing, he disclosed he intended to sell approximately $60 million in stock over the next 90 days. That would clear out a large percentage of his ownership. So why is this important? Well, first of all, you know, a former CEO is only one day removed from the job selling $60 million of stock and reducing their equity exposure by upwards of 90% could be taken as a pretty negative signal. In this case, Sloan still held on to about $6.7 million in shares, had another $2.3 million in stock options that he actually only had three months to uh, use or lose. But he was also eligible for some performance-based restricted stock vestings through the year 2026 that could result in him receiving several million dollars of stock down the road. So when we think about, it, yes, he's selling $60 million in shares, but he also had another $6.7 million that he was retaining. He's going to probably cash in those options, generate some more liquidity. He could also net, again, millions of dollars of stock over the next three years, even though he's no longer employed by the company. So if you just looked at the Form 144, all you would have seen from that was none of that information. You wouldn't know how much stock he still held because the Form 144 doesn't have a disclosure for holdings. You wouldn't know that he still got performance-based restricted stock that can vest years later. Uh, you also wouldn't really understand what his history is, you know, in terms of his insider behavior at this company. With just the 144 in hand, all you know is that this guy who is the CEO, the day after he steps down from being CEO, he's prepared to sell a lot of stock. Again, because it's a 144, we know he intends to sell the shares. We don't know exactly when, sometime within the next 90 days, perhaps. We don't know at what price. We don't know through what method. Is he going to sell it all at once? Is he going to do it in chunks? We don't know. That's that's the 144. We get some information, but not the full picture. As it stands in this example, you know, what I thought was really interesting was the fact that he did hold on to some stock. You think about if he's got $60 million in shares, that's probably a large percentage of his wealth. He's leaving a company. He no longer has an information advantage. His financial advisors, his family, they're all saying to him, listen, you can't be overweight the stock anymore. You're not, you're not the head cheese at the company. You know, you've got to diversify more. And that's probably what he's doing. The fact that he still held on to several million dollars worth of stock is actually a positive. Form 144s are a great source of information. And as somebody who's been looking at these filings for more than two decades, I'm very happy that the SEC has finally joined uh, the digital age when it comes to these disclosures. 
My fear, however, is that investors will misunderstand what is being disclosed and not be able to connect the dots. Being able to connect the dots between these types of filings, actual insider trading disclosures, and an insider's trading history is what can give you a differentiated edge in your investing. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was brought to you by Verity. Verity designs software that helps over 360 asset managers discover one-of-a-kind insights, streamline research workflows, and manage fund research productively. To learn more or begin a free trial, visit verityplatform.com. This episode of Differentiated with Ben Silverman was edited, mixed, and scored by Calvin Marty. 